Welcome to Barefoot Mysteries, where your Barefoot Mystery hosts, Pat and Dave, explore the unsolved, the unexplained, the spooky, and the downright weird world we live in. Are you in the mood for ghostly hauntings and an urban legend? Well, if so, kick off your shoes, get comfortable, make sure to keep those lights on, and let's get started with today's episode. Barefoot Mysteries, Detective Dave. Hey, Detective Dave, it's Super Sleuth Pat reporting for duty. I have an alleged paranormal haunting and a true-life urban legend I want to take a look at. You want to come along for the ride? Yes, I do. Let's do it. I invite you all to come with me to a sleepy little town that lies 44 miles south of Little Rock, Arkansas, known as Quitman. Could this quaint little town be a gateway for ghostly hauntings? It certainly has all the credentials. One of the oldest communities in the state, the city where men came to enlist for the Civil War, and early century large Victorian homes makes Quitman an ideal place for paranormal activity and the birth of an urban legend. It has a lot of history, and I love those Victorian homes. Oh, they're amazing. And it always seems like in the old areas is where spirits seem to let themselves be known. That could be the case, especially 65. That's got to be close to the original properties or downtown in the old days. Yes, and that's exactly where we're going, is 65 Mulberry Street, and the home of the Restless Spirits. 65 Mulberry Street was, and still is, considered one of the most beautiful Victorian homes to grace the city of Quitman. Built by the Garrett family and completed in 1890, this infamous home was first purchased by Benjamin Jackson for his wife. As fate would have it, though, Mrs. Jackson died of an illness at the young age of 28, and their only child, a son named Joseph, died in battle at at World War I at the age of 21. Mr. Jackson, a broken man after the loss of his wife, and then his only child could no longer bear to live in the home alone and moved away. The house sat alone and empty for several years until 1950, when it was purchased by Floyd and Aline Bettis. After being childless for many years, Aline Bettis gave birth to their first and only child on July 23, 1953. She must have been really excited. Oh, can you imagine? Finally, all these years, and we've finally been blessed with a child. Exactly. The community thought of Floyd and Eileen as very good people. They were very well thought of in the community. However, their son Gerald was a different story. He soon proved to be a very strange child, making life very difficult for his parents. Gerald grew to be quite large, growing to 6'4", 
and weighing in at 300 pounds as early as his teenage years. That is a large young man. That is large for a grown man, much less someone in his pre-teens. Due to his abnormally large size and his inability to socially interact with others, he became a victim of constant teasing and bullying by his school classmates. It was during his teenage years that Gerald developed some bizarre behaviors, and these behaviors developed into something sinister and ominous. His newest obsession involved collecting stray dogs and cats. His parents thought his obsession with these animals was the result of being the object of so much teasing at school and being so very lonely. However, the real reason behind this collection was, in truth, horrific. Gerald delighted in torturing and killing these innocent animals. Neighbors would hear the sound of these poor animals whimpering, crying, and howling in pain. Because, oh, I just, I can't even think about it. I can't even think about it. With all my dogs and cats and, oh, no, that would be. Somebody doing that? That's crazy. No, just unforgivable. Because rumors about this gruesome fascination of his swirled throughout the city, his classmates started calling him Dog Boy. Dog Boy? Dog Boy. Mm. And this label seemed to stay with him throughout his entire life. Now, most people would find this name calling embarrassing or annoying, But Gerald took great delight in it, and he reveled in the attention. Gerald continued to live with his parents as he grew older and took over the household responsibilities. He even added an addition to the home just for the purpose of housing his ever-growing collection of tortured and dead animals. Just what he needs is a special location. Oh, gosh, how big was his collection? No kidding. Well... It wouldn't be long until he was no longer satisfied with small animals, and he turned his attention to something larger, his own aging parents. Gerald held his parents captive by imprisoning them. Okay, and the dogs apparently are quite interested in this mystery as well. Let me see if I can find out what their input is. They want to know. They do want to know. One moment, please. Just as his custom was with the animals and keeping them trapped, Gerald held his parents captive by imprisoning them in the upstairs bedrooms, denying them food for days on end, or giving them food whenever he remembered. He did, however, always remember, and never forgot, to beat his parents daily, most frequently his father. His father, a daily ritual. Absolutely. Well, more so on his father than his mother, but they did both get beaten. When his father was 67 years old, Gerald threw him out of a second-story window. Floyd managed to avoid falling to his death by grabbing and holding onto the windowsill until police rescued him. He was rescued because a neighbor had seen what had happened and call the police. That seems like a pretty open and shut case. Well, you would think so, but unbelievably, no action was taken against Gerald because he apparently 
talked his way out of it, and he continued to abuse his parents freely and unencumbered. Well, that's very sad for the parents. This child that they wanted so badly and loved. It wasn't until 1981 that Floyd was finally freed of his son's sadistic torture. It was during one of those daily beatings that Floyd fell down the stairs and died from a broken neck. Well, as an attempt to not be found out, Gerald claimed his father had died peacefully after suffering a long illness. Of course he would. Oh, yeah. In the early 1980s, his mother, Aileen, almost suffered the same fate as she fell and broke her hip. This required her to be transported to the hospital. While there, though, a nurse witnessed Gerald slapping his mother several times, shouting at her that he would have her arrested if she told anyone what he did. Thank God for that nurse, because it was this nurse's report that resulted in Eileen being taken out of the home permanently and sheltered by Adult Protective Services. Yeah, very fortunate that she got out. Oh, thank God. That that saved her. Her her breaking her hip actually saved her. Shortly after his mother was removed, though, Gerald began growing and selling plants because he had so much spare time with no one to beat and and torture and starve. Now, one of his biggest sellers was I'll, I'll guess. I'll guess. Okay, okay. A man eating plant. Yeah, that would that would be good, and then Gerald would be gone. But no, this was marijuana. Yes, he was uh, he was making quite a good uh, amount of money with that, but it was because of the nurse's report and the mother's testimony, and the fact that the police discovered his distribution that. He was charged with drug charges and elderly abuse and was incarcerated at the Arkansas Department of Corrections in 1984. So they get him on marijuana, but they don't get him on murdering people. No, not on murdering, but just abuse. Oh, uh, yeah, abuse. Yeah, that's all they could prove, of course. You know, we have a wonderful justice system, but sometimes things uh, just don't go the way we think they should. All right through those cracks. Absolutely. Well, on May 18th, 1988, while serving time, Gerald mysteriously died of an overdose. Wow. Hmm, mysterious. Mysterious in prison in Arkansas, and he was still able to get drugs. Do you think maybe they needed some space? He was a pretty large boy. Well, <laughs> who knows who helped him along? He is buried in Pearson Cemetery, sorry, Pearson Cemetery in Arkansas. Would that be in one of those extra large coffins? Uh, yeah, who knows? I don't know how they yeah, I don't know how they would lower his body into that grave. The home on Mulberry Street sat empty and was inherited by a family niece who took no time at all in turning it over for sale. Good thinking. 
The house was purchased by Tony Weaver. When he and his wife moved into the home, almost immediately, the restless spirits made themselves known. Tony reported that one day when he was working on the house, and it always seems that when people are working on the house or remodeling that the spirits seem to let themselves uh, known in a not-so-quiet way. They probably don't like getting disturbed. Oh, they probably don't want you messing with their house. Exactly. It was while he was working on the house when he saw a man in a World War I uniform and helmet looking into the foyer. Then he walked through the living room, and Tony said he looked so real that when he walked through the living room, Tony stopped what he was doing and ran after him, but when he got there, no one was there. So would that have been the other son that got killed? I think it was Joseph that had passed away, and and he came back to the house that he was born in. Yeah, that was his house. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Tony's wife worked nights, and when she left, she always made sure that the lights were off before she left for work. But without fail, every time she came home, those lights would be back on. So Tony and and her figured, well, maybe an intruder came in and, and turned them on. But then more supernatural events began to happen. One time, they saw pennies come floating through the air down the stairwell And they came all the way down, all the way down to the bottom where Tony and his wife were standing. And they suddenly just dropped to the floor, scattering everywhere. Pennies? Pennies. Hmm. Large, significant amount of money. Well, probably back then. That's true. After six months of such occurrences, the wife was terrified and refused to live there any longer. And of course, they moved out. Good plan. Tony Weaver rented the house out because he needed to pay the mortgage. The first family to move in were Quentin White and his wife, Stephanie. But right after moving in, strange things started to happen. Toilets throughout the house would flush on their own. Lights would come on and off all on their own. And then one day when Quentin was working on the house, he had stacked a large pile of two-by-fours on the floor on one of the upstairs bedrooms. He went downstairs to talk to his wife when they both suddenly heard large crash sounding from upstairs, and he ran upstairs and found that the two-by-fours he had laid down so precisely were now all standing up perpendicular to the floor in a circle. Well, didn't take long. The whites moved out of the house a few months later. It'd be different if you own it as far as trying to stay there, but if you're a tenant, you're going to get the heck out of there. I don't know why they took a few months to get out. Yeah, exactly. Should have gone quicker. They were soon followed by Ed Munnerlin, a former pilot with Federal Express, and his wife. He wasn't concerned at all with the rumors of the house being haunted because he considered himself to be a very regional, Sorry, rational and logical man. So he was just going to say it wasn't there. It's not. You know, ghosts don't exist. Don't it be silly. That's real. right. That's right. Well, guess he got 
proven wrong because he also had several unexplainable incidents happen to him. When he would work on the house, he said he felt like something sinister, someone sinister was watching him. He also claims to have seen spirits several times. When he would pull into the driveway, he would look up and see a man at the upstairs window looking down at him. The man in the window was dressed in a brown jacket and a bow tie like he was from some other time period. In the extension in the house is where Munnerlin claims to have seen the spirit of Gerald Bettis looking at him several times. So he is starting to become a believer? Well, he is seeing something. Exactly, something. Mr. Munnerlin said this figure was huge, strange-looking with long brown hair, creepy eyes, great big arms and hands. He said he saw him walk right in front of him. He stopped and glared at him, and then he walked through the hall and disappeared. He also experienced times when cold wind seemed to be blowing down his neck. Sometimes he would hear something slam or someone walking across the floor but couldn't see anything. He said, I think they were just letting me know they, they were there and they weren't going anywhere. He moved out a few months later. Yeah, that took him a little longer. Exactly. Well, Mr. Weaver couldn't get any more renters to come in. The rumor had been spread. The house was haunted. He put it on the market, and he continued to show the home to prospective buyers with little success. He said if he brought somebody in there that he thought the spirits didn't like, you'd feel chills and your hair would stand right up on end. He said some prospective buyers saw a recliner in the home suddenly flip open and back like someone was sitting there, and it would stay that way the whole time they were at the place looking around. Most times when you sell a house, if you keep bringing that price down, it's going to sell. Well, yeah, but (laughs) I don't think you could give it away at this point. It doesn't sound like it could. There was even another prospect who brought the dog with them when they came to see the house, but the animal refused to go inside. Smart dog. Oh, dogs have a sense about them. The house has since been bought and sold many times, but people can't seem to stay for very long. They swear that the house is haunted by none other than the dog boy. Dog Think, boy. Dog boy. Things are thrown around rooms. Chairs are moved. Some even swear that Gerald would chase them on all floors. On four floors. On all fours. On all floors. On, on the floors. On all fours. <laughs> screaming at them to get out. Others claimed that they have walked past the house after dark, heard deep growling, and are chased by a large creature that looks like a huge half-man, half-dog, trying to grab them. This is a spooky house. This is, yeah. This is, it, you know, and here's this urban legend of Dog Boy based on a true person, which is even scarier. Well... 
It seems that Gerald always craved attention, and he certainly doesn't have any intention of leaving his home or of letting the urban legend of Dog Boy die. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think, Dave? Is this a true paranormal activity and legend? Well, with as many people as are reporting issues over and over again, it certainly seems to fall into that category. It does seem to make it a little more credible, doesn't it? It does indeed. Well, I think we'd love to hear from our listeners. We'd love to see, find out exactly how you feel about this mystery and this legend and what you think should be done or should have been done or exactly what is going on in this house. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to share your opinions. So if you'd like us to share your thoughts and feelings, we invite you to drop us an email at barefootmysteries at gmail.com. Again, barefootmysteries at gmail.com. We, I know, would get a kick out of hearing different ideas because we may just have tunnel vision on this one. Yeah, we need some help and we would want your, your input all day long. Excellent. So, don't disappoint us. Let us know where we went wrong on this one. And until we see you during the next episode, dear listeners, please remember to be kind. Be kind to each other.